Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 65. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're kicking off the holiday season reviewing what is perceived as a holiday classic, Babes in Toyland. This one is the 1961 try that Walt Disney gave it. Uh, Originally, it was actually Hal Roach made the first Babes in Toyland, I believe, 1934. The same Hal Roach that did the Hour Gang shorts, that one was uh, starred Laurel and Hardy. It was later edited down and renamed March of the Wooden Soldiers, which I'm sort of surprised about because I've only ever really watched March of the Wooden Soldiers. Right. That was always the holiday staple in my house. And by holiday staple, I do just want to clarify We're talking Thanksgiving staple. Yes. We're not getting into Christmas movies just yet. But we're almost there. But I would watch... I refuse to before December. Being in the parks is one thing because the holiday celebrations are lovely. But I'm not crossing that line just yet. We used to watch this every year, March of the Wooden Soldiers, that is, because it was one of my father's favorite Christmas movies. And when it said Babes in Toyland in the opening credits, I just thought... It was somehow like a sequel or or in the same universe of. I didn't realize it was literally the same movie, but like nine minutes shorter. Same with my dad. It was one of his favorites to a point where one year for Christmas, we tracked down the DVD and this was before kids... Media was streaming, and it was so easy to get things. This was way before the days of Disney+. Plus. But it should have been pretty easy to find because March of the Wooden Soldiers is not copywritten. Maybe that's why it was so hard to find because if, if nobody owns it, like who's distributing it? Yeah. I don't even know. I couldn't tell you where I finally tracked this thing down. And I'm sure that that's part of why it's always on TV on Thanksgiving. Yeah, because it costs nothing to air. Because it costs literally nothing to air. The only version of Babes in Toyland that I had ever seen as a kid was this 1961 Walt Disney version. We're introduced to Sylvester Goose and Mother Goose, who welcome us to the wedding of Tom and Mary. After drinking lemonade... And celebrating their upcoming wedding, we see Mr. Barnaby, who tells us that Mary is to receive a large sum of money upon being married, so he wishes to wed her. Though we don't know why she's getting this money. Apparently, she just gets it for getting married. He hires Rodrigo and uh, Gonzorgo. I'm going to have to stop from saying Gorgonzola the whole time. It's so close. Uh, Gonzorgo to kidnap Tom and toss him in the sea before stealing Mary's sheep. Later that night, the thugs and their cartoon-sized mallet knock Tom (laughs) out, but they decide to sell Tom to a gypsy camp to get paid twice for their heist. When Tom does not arrive for the wedding, Rodrigo and Gonzorgo pretend to be shipwrecked sailors and tell Mary that Tom was lost at sea 
and read a fake note saying that he was poor and she should marry wealthy Barnaby. Barnaby attempts to comfort Mary, but she rejects him and his attempts and his castle in Spain that he wants to take her to. Bo Peep arrives to tell Mary um, that the sheep, and therefore their only form of income, are now missing, uh, lost to the forest of no return. Bo and the rest of the kids set off to find the sheep and stop Mary from marrying Barnaby because she has agreed to do so in order to keep their house going because they have no other money. To celebrate the news of their wedding, Barnaby hires a band of gypsies to entertain everyone. Well, Tom arrives with the gypsies, and after their performance, he reveals himself much to the excitement of Mary, as well as the rest of the people in town who have feared him dead. In the forest of no return, the children are in search of the sheep, um, so Mary and Tom set off to go save them. In the forest, the trees come to life and tell the children that they can't get out. So naturally, they get out and reunite with Tom and Mary. And no, that was not a typo in my plot. That's actually what happened. Rather than head home, they decide to sleep in the forest for the night. The forest of no return that you can't escape from until you can escape from it. And wait for daylight. Barnaby, Rodrigo, and Gorzango uh, track them down, but day immediately breaks. Immediately. Like, at the snap of a finger. And the trees tell the group their fate will be determined by the toy maker because they are on Toyland property. They arrive to the factory, which appears to be abandoned, we meet the toy maker and Grumio, who shows the toy maker his new toy making machine, but the toy maker is a little too enthusiastic and destroys the machine. The toy maker becomes upset that he won't be able to make his Christmas deadline, so the gang offers to help him out. With night falling just as quickly as day broke, Barnaby, Rodrigo, and Gorgonzola. And I did that intentionally. Cheese. His name is Cheese. Let's just make it easy. Attempt to abduct them from the factory. Grumio enters the factory with his new invention, a shrinking gun, which can turn everyday objects into toy-sized objects. When Grumio doesn't know where they will find the large items to make small, the toy maker throws the gun out of the window and into the hands of Barnaby, who then shrinks the toy maker and sticks him in a birdcage. Rodrigo and Gon... I knew I was going to do it. <laughs> Gonzorgo, cheese, tell Barnaby they want nothing to do with his scheme and threaten to out him to everybody, so Barnaby shrinks them as well. Barnaby then sneaks into Mary's room, yeah, that's not creepy at all. And shows her that Tom was also shrunken and threatens to further shrink him basically into nothingness. But Mary agrees to do whatever he wants to save Tom. So Barnaby arranges their wedding using the toy maker as the officiant. Tom is helped out of his restraints by Rodrigo and Gorn. I knew it. <laughs> Gorzongo. The toy maker 
as he sees this happening, of course, intentionally slows down the ceremony while Tom releases dozens of toy soldiers to unleash havoc on Barnaby. Eventually, Barnaby gets his hands on one of the cannons and destroys all of the soldiers. He grabs the shrinking gun to shoot Tom again, but Mary uses a cannon to break the jar that was attached to the gun that contained the shrinking potion, and she shrinks Barnaby. Barnaby sword fights Tom, but is knocked into a box and trapped. Crumio arrives with his new invention, Naturally, it's a restoring formula and restores the toy maker, Rodrigo, Gorzango, and Tom to their proper sizes. They all return home and Tom and Mary are married. Well, yes. you did that better than I ever could. I'll give you and that I'm much. And I'm struggling. I have almost no voice. You You're welcome. passed along the plain plague to me. What's this, mine is yours. Yeah, it's not really what I meant, but okay. <laughs> um, this movie has a running time of one hour, 45 minutes, and 48 seconds. Which is about an hour too long. This movie feels like it's three hours long. Now, this was Walt Disney's first live-action musical, right. interestingly enough. This is what he decided to tackle. Um, he modeled the set after the Wizard of Oz. But. Well, we'll talk about the set in just a minute. But I want for anybody that's seen this movie and for you specifically, your favorite movie is the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings here. My feelings aren't mixed. Um, but I want it to set in for just a minute that. This was modeled after The Wizard of Oz. It, you know, without you even saying that, that is one of my notes, that there's a lot here that's reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz. And I didn't think it was done intentionally, so that's kind of interesting to learn, especially because, you know, the biggest thing is that Ray Bulger's in it, who played the Scarecrow. And that's where my feelings are mixed, because... I don't want to hate a movie that has my scarecrow in it. And it was also Ray Bulger's first role as a villain. He had never played a villain in a movie before. So this was his first time out. Let's talk about the script. Well, let's let's circle back to the set first because okay. I read that after they filmed this movie, they had it on display in Disneyland for a little while so that you could walk through it, and it was it was like an attraction. And I thought, oh, how cool. That's such a great idea that they got to do that. And then I realized that we got to do the same thing. It was called the Backlot Tour. Give it back. So there's that. Okay, you've had that now. Yes. Do you feel better? No. Neither do I, because this looks like a cheap set, which is a problem because you modeled it after one of the most timeless films, one of the most influential films in the history of cinema. And you know what? An argument can be made that certain movies should not be put on Blu-ray because they don't translate very well. I've said that about The Wizard of Oz. See, and I, for one, think that The Wizard of Oz looks brilliant on Blu-ray. At some points, but others, it's really bad. Like, 
when you look at the backdrops, you can really see that they're painted backdrops. It doesn't look as sharp and as nice as they do when it's just on grainy film and it looks like the sky. But do the sets look as beautiful? Yes. Okay. That didn't in this movie. <laughs> in this movie, the sets look terrible. When you model your sets after one of the greatest films of all time, nearly 30 years after that film was released and it doesn't hold up, you've got a problem. Here's the thing. The set is fun. I will give it that. I like that they establish it right away, that it's a bunch of nursery rhymes that you're familiar with. So you see the shoe from the old woman who lives in the shoe. You see uh, Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater. Uh, Jack, as in Jack of the jumping over the candlestick. So that's all. But... You're right. The sets aren't as sharp, but I feel like that was done intentionally and it was a stylistic choice because this is supposed to look like a stage play throughout. Right. It's not like... I don't think in this case you were supposed to be completely transported to that fantasy land like Oz or even something like Willy Wonka when they go into the factory because that's the other... you know, parallel that I see when they get to the toy maker's house. Yeah. That kind of fit. Well, Willy Wonka was later, but um, I don't think it was supposed to have that completely immersive feel. Regardless of whether it's supposed to be immersive or not, I think the sets just look way too fake. I understand they're trying to make it look like musical theater, but this looks like community musical theater they're two-dimensional it looks like yeah that they're painted on just a piece of wood instead of actually building it to scale right and when you're trying to model something after the wizard of oz that 80 years later still looks great i i fail to see other than very bright whimsical colors where the influence is shown here Right, because it does it does have that Munchkinland feel with the color and the shapes and the you know that town square feeling right from the beginning. But yeah, other than that, you know, it doesn't hold a candle to the Wizard of Oz set. Agreed. I will say this though, I do like the setup. Um, you know, they've got that classic vaudeville open where the goose does the intro. Uh, and he's kind of talking backstage like we've seen it a million times in I Love Lucy. Uh, you even see it again later with the Muppets. That was definitely a Muppety trope as that show progressed. Um, and they do that really great transition where the curtain opens up. But instead of just seeing the stage, you've got the whole soundstage. Right. And and the puppet for the goose, it's okay. Sometimes... Mother Goose, basically, they have a fake arm that is holding the goose from underneath, and she is the puppeteer. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, her actual arm is in the puppet. Right. Sometimes it looks great. Other times it looks too deliberate. And I think back to when Ron Schneider, the original Dream Finder, Journey into Imagination... At Epcot Center, they did the same effect for him and Figment. Right. 
and Figment, while he didn't always speak, in fact, I don't think he ever actually spoke, was just so lifelike where they played off of each other. Mm -hmm. That didn't really get accomplished here. I don't know that the actress who played Mother Goose had ever actually worked with a puppet, but when the puppet moved, sometimes her entire shoulder went with it. Right. So it sometimes it worked. A lot of times it didn't. I understand what they were trying to do, but again, it's it just I have a problem getting into this movie from the very start because this is the first thing that you see. And it just looks very fake. I mean, we know that it's a goose is not actually speaking. We know that it's fake. But I felt that it was poor puppeteering here, which is a shame because I think the design of the goose itself is actually pretty good. Yeah, no, everything else about it looks great. But yeah, there are times when it's just not very smooth. Yeah. It opens up into the whole stage. Okay, fine. But every scene in this movie drags on. This opening included. They just drag on for so long. Yeah, that opening number... I didn't realize until the second viewing how long it actually is. It goes on forever. They put Mary and Tom on their shoulders during the opening number and just walk in circles with them for reasons we don't understand. It doesn't make any sort of sense. I think one of the most egregious things about this film is the editing. And... I don't want to be so technical about it, but, you know, that is one of the things that does stand out to me because I've had practice cutting things down myself. So, you know, it's twofold. It's like you said before that, yes, the total running time, they definitely could have shortened the film overall. But I think this opening number is where the problem is most obvious because, they shot it for the most part, and this is where it feels like it drags too. It's shot wide, and I get that you have that entire soundstage to play with, and like you said, they probably really wanted to demonstrate this, what they thought was a cool set that they built. Right. But the reason that you would adapt a musical to a film is so that you can punch in some shots and you can get closer up and you can give it more depth and more context by reframing things. And there's really not a lot of cuts. They just leave everything wide and the dancers come in and out. And sometimes it's nice to see that choreography play out. But a lot of times it's like, this is why you are doing a film is because you can edit and you should edit because a lot of these shots linger on these dancers that are making that like Hollywood 101 face. You know, the bright eyes, the big smile, the this is take 17, but I'm having the time of my life and you're never going to know that I'm running out of energy. The only thing they're missing is jazz hands. Exactly. And that does happen often in these classic Hollywood musicals, but that was also 30 years before this movie was made. Right. There's really no excuses as far as the pacing. And, you know, I I was curious to see, um, you know, who, who edited this film, and they, they were in the union. 
they have the ace next to their name. So, like, I was really taken aback by, you know, a union editor leaving it to drag like this. And especially when you think uh, this was 1961, the best picture Oscar was The Apartment. Like, when you put it up against that, we're, you know, we're moving through experience in years here. Like, we've come a lot farther with film as a medium by this point. Yeah, the fact that the movie feels dated in 1961 is a problem. When film was not primitive, but it certainly wasn't what it is now. Let's let's move through the script a little bit here, move through the plot. Just a little bit past even this opening dance number. I want to fast forward to when Tom comes back, Barnaby is so quick to forgive Rodrigo and Gorgonzo. And I don't understand why. He's like, well, I can appreciate a good double cross. Okay, here's the next scheme. What are you talking about? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yes, because every other Disney villain we've seen where the henchmen didn't carry out exactly what they were supposed to, like like think about Yzma when Kronk didn't finish the job. They all flip out, and I wanted that like comical flip out, especially because th- th- this is like this is kind of like watching an animation. Like there are so many cartoony elements here. I wanted that from him, and instead what we got it it was so weird like it was supposed to be satirical where he would always talk about what villainous thing he was going to do almost like um like Chris Cooper and Muppets with the maniacal laugh yes he would call himself out like that and this would have been a really good place for that to happen except he didn't accomplish it for whatever reason the other thing is mind you it's not as if this was the first time out for Babes in Toyland. We had a Babes in Toyland. We had a March of the Wooden Soldiers. We had a Barnaby. And he was scary. And he was sadistical. And he was evil. He was a great character. And frankly, when you have a basis of comparison, remember, 1961... How many remakes were there in 1961? I have to imagine not a whole hell you of could a lot. Count them probably on both hands. If even that many. This might have been a first. Probably not a first, but close to it. You had a basis of comparison. You have a brilliant actor. Ray Bolger is a brilliant actor. And Barnaby is a swing and a miss. And he's a Bad swing and a miss. I would be fine with a whimsical villain, which is sure. what this should have been, where, you know, almost like something you you would maybe find in a Burton film, where, or like even like a Jafar or a Scar, where like they're super evil, but they've got that little flamboyance about them. That would have been perfect here. But yeah, Barnaby is just, he's just weird. He he's, looks, he's like a creepy uncle, not a villain. And he looks like a vampire. I'm okay with that, though. I'm okay with the wardrobe and the, you know, the curly Q hair and that kind of thing. And, yeah, the, the black and purple cape that he wears. Well, no, I'm on board with that, because eventually he does a tango. That, that all works for me. 
I want to. I'm going to skip past the part where they escape from the forest that you can't escape from because I don't think that a lot needs to be said there about escaping from the place you can't escape from and then deciding to spend the night in the place that you escaped from but you shouldn't have been able to escape from. Yeah, there's... A huge disconnect, especially because they've already met the trees at this point. The kids have already been frightened by them. It's not like they got to the forest and they realized, oh, well, my sheep are here and it's not really as bad as it was made out to be. This was just, you know, something your mom says to scare you so you don't go playing there. Um, But the next morning when they wake up, that is another example of where they needed more edits because when they get up, the trees are supposed to be surrounding them, but to get to where they need to be to, to like hit their mark on the stage, they have to run into the trees. So you could have used a cut where in the wide they're, they're heading out from where they were sleeping. And then the next thing you know, in the next shot, they're surrounded by the trees. Instead, you just see them walk into the middle and allow themselves to be captured, essentially. Were you waiting for the trees to start throwing apples? Totally. Because I was, and they didn't. And then they go to the toy factory as a punishment. Children get sent to a toy factory to be punished. Again, how is this a punishment? That's like me... As a child, if I had failed a test and my mother said, shame on you. Here's an ice cream sundae. Yeah, shame on you. Let's go to Disney World. It just does not make sense. The toy maker is Edwin and he's just kind of Edwin about things. Very whimsical. Good casting. But Groomio. And I have nothing against Tommy Kirk. And I don't even have anything against Groomio. But... The way that he invents things, and then he invents things to fix his inventions, and he pulls them out of nowhere in a time that you should not have been able to pull a brand new invention out that quickly. Yet he does. It's like the Batman television show from the 1960s. But that, in many ways, was meant to be a satire. Well, thankfully, I have my anti-shrinking ray. Thankfully, I have my antibacterial spray. Well, luckily, I have my anti-bomb bomb. That actually doesn't bother me so much because of how many times the toy maker says, don't forget, you're my assistant. Yeah, I kind of it. feel like he does have all this stuff just kind of waiting at his disposal because what else is he doing with his day? I guess. But even that, after a while, was like, we get it, you're the head toy maker. I don't need to hear you say it again. It was just beaten to death. Right. And again, it dragged out dialogue that didn't need to be dragged out. It dragged out scenes that didn't need to be dragged out. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, it hurt the pacing of the film. It really did. That whole third act in the toy shop, it feels like a completely different film altogether. Just like set wise, tonally it shifts. And it's, you know, it's no wonder that they isolated that part to make March of the Wooden Soldiers. Technically, it is an entire separate film. 
And I feel like they would have done well to keep that in mind here. And that could have been the focus of the movie and the rest could have been cut down. This movie was really starting to lose me before we got to this scene. This scene is specifically is where the movie completely loses me. Yeah. In the original, and I'm just going to call it March of the Wooden Soldiers because I think that's how a lot of people have seen the movie. No, honestly, I never knew. I knew there was a link to March of the Wooden Soldiers and Babes in Toyland. I didn't know that this was a remake of the original and March of the Wooden Soldiers came out of the original. So, in March of the Wooden Soldiers, the entire setup for Tom... Now, there is no Mary Contrary in March of the Wooden Soldiers. Annette Funicello plays her in this film, created for this movie. Really just a vehicle to put Annette Funicello in a film. She was just credited as Annette, though. I know. Because at the time, she was just she Annette. She was just Annette. So, she was cute, though. She was. I did like her. So She's did I. one of the redeeming qualities about this movie. Yeah. Um, in March of the Wooden Soldiers, Tom, Tom Piper, mm-hmm. is set to marry Bo Peep. Right. Who continues to lose her sheep. Right, right, right. Barnaby sets up a scheme where he kidnaps the three little pigs. I think he actually sends them to Bogeyland. Bogeyland was basically the forest of no return. They disappeared. He planted, and it's tongue-in-cheek, he planted sausages in Tom Tom's home. Right, right. And drew up the story that Tom killed the three little pigs. Right. So as a sentence, Tom Tom gets sent to Bogeyland. Stanny and Ollie, Laurel and Hardy, end up eating the sausages and realize they're beef, not pork. That's how they debunk the story. Sure. And then... The whole mix-up with the toy maker, he's not fun, he's not whimsical. He's a tyrant who fires Stanny and Ollie. The whole mix-up is that Santa Claus is in the movie, which is what makes it a Christmas film. And he wanted 600 one-foot-tall toy soldiers. But Laurel and Hardy made a mistake and made 100 six-foot-tall wooden soldiers. And those six-foot-tall wooden soldiers are what launch an attack on Barnaby. Right. To this day, they're still impressive. That's what makes that movie timeless. That's what makes that movie special. So you took the best part of March of the Wooden Soldiers, and it's as we're watching this, I'm excited. Because they haven't made the joke about making the mistake with the numbers and producing the wrong soldiers. Because admittedly, I had seen this movie once when I was like five or six years old. And I thought to myself, I like March of the Wooden Soldiers more. And I never went back to go watch this. So I was when you're a kid, you're not picking up on all this stuff. No, except I knew I didn't like this as a kid. 
when compared to the other film. So I forgot that that gag isn't in there. So I'm thinking, well, they've got all these shrinking, restoring, uh, all the other inventions that Grumio has invented. I'm waiting for my 100 six-foot-tall wooden soldiers to attack Barnaby. That doesn't happen here. It doesn't. Now I will say, some of the effects are not half bad. The stop motion that they use for the soldiers themselves, it's very primitive. It's a little herky-jerky, but I can kind of forgive that. Right. But Tom has been shrunk down to the size of a toy. Rodrigo and Cheese have been shrunk down to the size of toys. The toy maker. The toy maker. Shrunk to the size of a toy. So they unleash regular toy wooden soldiers on Barnaby. Again, you've taken the best part of the original movie and you've thrown that all away. No, and it's really surprising that at this point, you know, the parks are open. Walt is super into his animatronics that he wouldn't have wanted to try something like that with the gigantic wooden soldiers. Yeah. I will say that I think the sets that they built around the actors after they were shrunk, those are probably the best sets in the movie. Right. And at this point, I mean, I do kind of see why they made that choice as well, because he was getting into that idea of merging the animation, in this case stop motion, with the live action. You know, and we do see it a few years later, obviously, when Mary Poppins comes out, but that's quite different. Right. But the soldiers start attacking Barnaby and... He basically just kicks them over. There's no real struggle. And Ray Bulger laughing through the attack might as well have been genuine. Because it's terrible. You're right. It's not a maniacal laugh. No, because he's literally just kicking them away. They do nothing to him. Nothing. My bigger issue, though, is that when they finally shrink Barnaby down to the toy size with the rest of them, is that now you've got four on one because you've got Tom shrunk, you've got the toy maker shrunk, and you've got now macaroni and cheese. The two of them have flipped size. Right. So you're four on one against Barnaby, and then you've got regular sized Mary who could just come and pick him up off the floor and kick him and you know, he'll be disposed of. Because Barnaby had no problem picking up Tom and Rodrigo and Gorgonzola and the toy maker. No problem doing that. Exactly. And Mary's just standing there like a damsel in distress, not doing anything. And instead, I mean, all right, we're trying to build the action. Okay, fine. So he, Barnaby and Tom sword fight, but you're outnumbered and you didn't use that to your advantage at all. Right. And I, I don't mean... The heroes versus the villain. I mean the storytellers. My question. Where does Barnaby go? He gets knocked into a box. The box closes. He's trapped. But what happens to Barnaby? Yeah, because they don't double tap him to make him evaporate. Where did he go? He's just lost to time. Old Barnaby. Yeah, it's not like he gets that Toy Story Lotso comeuppance at the end where you see him being shipped off with a child somewhere. But at the same time, 
could you really even do that? Because then it would take us out of the world. Well, that's the other thing. Like, it's not he doesn't go to bogey land. He's not chased away. This is part of what you lose by not having a bogey land here. Do you have anything else to add on the plot here before we move on to the music? Oh, I'll keep you here all night with the plot, so let's just move on. The first song, Mother Goose Village and Lemonade. Yes, that's the title. You mean Beyonce didn't invent lemonade? She did not invent many things, much to the dismay of many people. It's it's okay. Um, I don't really know why we're drinking lemonade. It's also... So very clear that they're not actually pouring lemonade. Yeah, what was that? I have no idea. You've created this whole fantasy world. Like, there were a lot of cool things that they could have done if they were, you know, they could have done, like, some kind of Mad Hatter tea party thing with it. They could have, because there are good sight gags in this movie. Yeah, like, with what they did with the pie men. That, that was, was actually really cool. It was great. And and I still don't know how they pulled that one off. No, because the pies aren't attached. And I don't think they did it stop motion when they like restack themselves either. No, it's definitely not stop motion. Yeah, because the background is all moving. The background actors don't stop. Right. It was impressive, whatever it was. Yeah, no, it was it was really cool. Maybe magnets. But um Yeah, if they would have done more sight gags like that with the rest of the characters throughout, I think it wouldn't have felt like it was dragging so much. Or maybe even just do something as simple as like, you know, to compare to The Wizard of Oz again. When they're doing uh, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, they're in the sets, they're out of the sets. And especially here where it's like I said before, it's nursery rhymes that you're all from, for, you're already familiar with. Take me into the house. Let me see what the old woman who lives in a shoe is living like. You know, like move in and out of those sets a little bit. And again, that's why supposedly you're doing this as a film because I'm not sitting in an audience looking at a one-dimensional stage or two-dimensional stage, I should say. Right. I, I want to see more. I want to go inside. The next song, We Won't Be Happy Until We Get It. Can I just say... The titles of these songs eventually do get shorter. <laughs> it's genuinely funny. It's got some clever lyrics. It's where you really see Vampire Barnaby and you see uh, Gorzongo and uh, Rodrigo. And it's it's a fun tune. I think it does set up the three of them as characters very well. It's funny, this is another area that actually reminds me of The Wizard of Oz, just the way that, and maybe it has to do a little bit with the costume, Barnaby's costume, but just when they're inside the lair, it kind of reminds me of like The Wizard of Oz as this recluse, because that's the thing, Barnaby is not, he's not like the villain up in the hill. He's not like Maleficent right. that drops in when she's pissed off. He he does handle the town's money. So he's an active community member. They all know he's up there. And they're all afraid of him because he can repossess their house and whatever else. Exactly. But um, yeah, that kind of felt like the Wizard of Oz to me. Just like the, the color palette in this scene and, and his, you know, hideaway up there. Yeah. Just a whisper away... Um, it's a nice instrumental, but otherwise it's just okay. It doesn't really have a beat to it. It's terrible. It's the most repetitive song. Like, I'd expect something like that 
on children's television. Yeah, and it it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Like the chorus springs up out of nowhere. It could have been a really nice duet. If they hit, you know, they're about to get married the next day. Give me the guy's perspective. Give me the girl's perspective and then merge the two together. No, it's just the two, you know, Tom says one thing, Mary repeats it, and then they sing it together. Slowly he sank to the bottom of the sea. Okay, so they don't always go down in in the length of the title. This is, to me, an example of a scene that doesn't need to exist. I understand this was their first foray into live-action musicals, and I understand it is a musical, but literally every single scene in this movie has at least one musical number. And it's not always necessary. Exhibit A. See, I actually don't mind this one because, again, it's a cool... Where this movie sometimes redeems itself is with these two characters. Because the physical comedy is great and I wish we would have seen more of that. Um, but here, I like the mallet scene. I like the... Uh, you know, the limp gag that they keep doing. Yeah. But here, where they're slowly actually sinking into the stage, and at one point, um, what's-his-name goes under. Oh, Rodrigo. Yes. I Good sight gag. Yeah, I, I actually think this one's kind of cool. Castle in Spain showcases Ray Bolger's brilliance. He can sing, he can dance. At this point, he's a middle-aged man, but... He still moves like the Scarecrow, which is impressive to me. He's a great dancer. There's no denying it. But I wish... See, I think this number does a disservice to him. I think, you know, it does showcase that he could still dance, especially at his age. But it is the slowest tango ever. The music is too upbeat. And the choreography is too slow where it doesn't match it. He should have been twirling Mary a lot more. Um, his footwork should have been a little faster. It's not a knock at him. It's the choreography overall. Annette's reactions, um, to me, could almost be just her reactions to the script in general. Just that disgusted look. She played it off very well in this scene. She did. Never mind Bo Peep. If you've seen the original film, you know the song. They do it here. I can't do the sum. I can't figure out this acid trip. This is a scene where Annette is trying to balance the books because now the sheep are gone and she's trying to figure out how they're going to keep the house going, but she can't do the sum. And it's her with four other Annettes that are all rainbow-colored, and there's a spotlight that comes on her when she's got a candlestick in her hand, and the spotlight is horrendous because it puts off way too much light, and the song makes no sense. Again, not every scene in this movie needed a musical number. I hate this number. Not just because of everything that they tried to do with the production and look at what we can do with all the color acid trip, but... I hate the song itself, and it's not a, a knock against Annette because she does sing it very well, but it's a heavy song. And that may sound ridiculous when you think about what some of our other Disney characters have dealt with. You know, 
she's not well she has dealt with death or so she thinks because at this point right. she's still lost tom and she's got to marry a man that she doesn't love to you know that's where this song is driving towards is that she's making the decision whether or not she should take up Barnaby on his offer. And she realizes by the end of the song that she has no choice but to do that. But what I don't like is that it gets so specific about, well, if I cut back on this, we can just make ends meet. And while we've dealt with bigger issues, this just hits like so close to home. This is not why I am watching a musical. This is just like, too real and too mundane and too accurate that I don't want to see it when I'm watching a movie. Well, the other thing is, take Mary Poppins Returns, for example. The Banks children, uh, the new generation of Banks children. Well, we'll go buy day-old bread like Mother taught us to do. That's how we'll save money. Done. You didn't need three minutes about singing about all the ways that you can cut costs and cut corners to keep the house going. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. We, we've seen the money issues in the Disney movies before. We've seen poverty even. But this was just like, I don't need to see you balance your budget. Right. This isn't one jump. I don't need to hear how you're going to scam your way out of this one. I would have been fine if she was scamming her way out of this one. Floretta is the next song on the soundtrack. Tommy Sands in this scene is great because he comes in with the uh, band of gypsies. They have him dressed up like an old hag. And I actually think he's really good here. Looks like he had a lot of fun. But it begs the question, why didn't Tom just escape? Why did he just willingly go through with this? I understand the gypsies own him. But he pulls off the fake nose and goes back with Mary. So, obviously, they were pretty good about just letting him go. Yeah, there was no protest, no nothing. But, honestly, that doesn't bother me so much because I actually do like the number. I think it's one of the stronger numbers. I think the dancing is great. Uh, Yeah, he's great in it. He clearly had a lot of fun, like you said. But what strikes me most about this number is that it feels so satirical. There's one of the most classic episodes of I Love Lucy is where she writes the play and she um, she postdates the check and they come to collect the set because there's no money in the account yet. And uh, it reminds me of the play that she made up about being a gypsy queen. And obviously there's gypsies that's a given but like there there's a part of this to just feel so satirical it's it reminds me so much of that number i also want the tambourines to stop the tambourines are ear piercingly loud in this movie or in this in this song i should say it's pretty bad <laughs> forest of no return all right this is one of the weaker numbers because you want to talk about a song being repetitive? This just repeats the same things over and over again. And the trees didn't throw any apples. Do you have anything to add on that? Uh, no, because they just repeat the same thing over and over again. See, if it's you wanted to directly rip off The Wizard of Oz, I would have almost been okay with that. A little apple choreography. There's not much to say because it's literally, it's a nothing. And, and I don't think I've ever sat here on this show 
in a year and a half or so that we've been on and said a song is a nothing. This song is nothing. It it just doesn't yeah, make no, it's it just nothing. It, it has no cut. substance. Go to sleep. Again, not everything needs to be a musical number. No, but I mean, I do like that, you know, Mary's got Tom back. He's coming in to save the day. I do like that they're both taking care of the kids. Although we've not addressed, and I guess I did have one more gripe about the plot than I realized. Why is Mary living with these kids? This is like the orphan spinster house. Right. It's not like Stanny and Ollie were living with the old woman in the shoe. Right, and it's and not they like were doing these are that. Her... They were doing that to keep that house afloat because she didn't have enough money. Right, and it's not like these are her siblings either. Right. Like, they fleshed that out very early in March of the Wooden Soldiers. You get no answer to that here. I think the implication is that Mary was also probably an orphan. She's just got, like, ten years on them, and she's ready to leave the nest. I guess. But I, I do kind of like that they take responsibility for them. It's a sweet scene. Yeah. Toyland. It's an iconic song. You've heard it a hundred times. It's well done here. It's not bad. It's pretty good. You associate it with the holidays, I suppose. I wish there was more fanfare with it, though. Like, it's weird that most of it takes place in the forest of no return. Like, to me, you're going to Toyland. Like, this should have been like you're off to see the wizard. It should have been them going over the bridge and getting to the toy maker. Right. It's in the original film, it's more grandiose. This could have been more like when Dorothy, even even when Dorothy is meeting the Munchkins for the first time. Right. And they're all sort of coming out of hiding and out of seclusion and they're opening the windows and coming out from behind the bushes and all that. And that doesn't really happen here. Workshop song. Yes, it's not just a working title. It's called Workshop Song. It's a little zippity doodah meets Merry Little Land of Oz. Um, I do like that number though. I think it's really well yeah. choreographed. So do I. I. I like it. Especially because, you know, the conveyor belt's moving. They keep bringing in new toys, but they're all new toys. I thought they could have very easily recycled it and just had the kids grab whatever's behind them and keep taking the same things off the conveyor belt. No, it's all new, and um, I, the kids handle it really well because they they're not constantly like running back and forth in front of the camera. They're not tripping over each other. I think there was a lot of room for error here, but it looks very clean. Mm-hmm. Just a Toy. Yes, there's still more songs, folks. Uh, just a Toy. It compares owning a special toy to being in a loving relationship. It's done a little tongue-in-cheek, but I actually do like this number for its creativity. And I do like that it is tongue-in-cheek. This is totally the better song with Tom and Mary. Yes. Um, and I wish they would have played up, you know, how he kind of like, he bends her wrists at one point and poses her arms so she looks like a doll. Yeah. I wish they would have done more in the choreography with that. Yeah, it would have been a little bit more fun. But you're right. Of all of the songs that they've had together, the dances, the duets, this one is is the best one. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. We finally, uh, no, we have finally gotten to the end of the songs here. Um you know, there's very few sets in this movie. Um, there's the town square. There's Mary's house. 
and her garden, Barnaby's house, the forest, and the toy factory. That's it. That's all there is. Very, very few sets. We've now gotten to the end of the film. We've gotten through the soundtrack. And I go back to where I started. I don't understand why this movie has the running time that it does. I don't understand why it drags on for as long as it does because it feels like a three-hour movie. Every single scene has a musical number. It's overkill. You took every great thing about the original and threw it away. Which, considering this was a film that Walt Disney made, he was still alive at the time, obviously. It was 1961, five years before he passed away. The fact that this was their first one out, I mean, I know they had a lot of learning to do, but for this to fall as flat as it did to me is sort of jarring. The whole can't shoot twice thing just reminds me of total protonic reversal from Ghostbusters. To be fair, Ghostbusters was later. They did it first. Yes, I know. They did. But that's what it reminds me of. Um, It's kind of my own inside joke to myself, but... The fact that you had a basis of comparison, you took a timeless movie, and this is this was your reimagining, for it to be as flat as it is, I hate to say it, given the people that are attached to it, Ward Kimball was one of the script writers. I know, He's one of Disney's nine old men. But this movie fails. It fails in so many aspects. And when you have the original that you're basing the movie off of. And that movie's from 1934, and it still holds up, and it still looks good, and it still sounds good. And for this one to not even hold a candle to it is just not forgivable. It's just not. And maybe I'm a little bit passionate about it because I love March of the Wooden Soldiers. But I just, I sort of can't, um, I can't believe this is the same studio that gave us so many brilliant movies and so many brilliant musicals. I know this was the first one out, but this movie is just bad. But that's the other thing. It's not like they've never done a musical before. Granted, you've done animations. You still know structurally what works. And you had a blueprint because this was a remake. You know, I, I look forward to coming and sitting here and recording the show every single week. And I have honestly been dreading recording this one. Number one, because we had to watch it a second time. And the first was enough for me. I actually, I watched it three times and I fell asleep during two of these viewings. Granted, I was still fighting off the plague, but like I I conked out on it twice. Um, So I had to watch it again. Was not looking forward to that. And I really didn't want to come to the mic and trash a movie that number one, my scarecrow is in, but also that Walt himself worked on. Like I wish this was the first one after he had passed. And we just clearly realized how lost we are without him. Yeah. Probably my biggest gripe, like I said before is with the editing because it's, it's inexcusable. Really? The pacing of the movie is just all wrong. There were, whole sequences that you could have trimmed out to knock down that total running time. There were shots that you should have cut out of because you're holding frozen on a person. And we're better than this. 
Disney is better than this, but like we've also come farther than this. Like I said, it was a, you know, an error in some of these classic Hollywood movies, but like this is 30 years later. We should not be having these issues. Um, but I think the other problem with it, and this is not really a production error. It has nothing to do really with any of the choices that they made. It's that they made it, period. It's that some musicals belong on the stage and do not belong adapted to film. Like Annie. It's been on Broadway and off. It comes back every couple of years and it's been remade into God knows how many films. And it works every single time, either which way. Sound of Music, same thing. It's a classic. Chicago, amazing adaptation to film because there's so much more there than what they put on the stage. The stage, there's like no sets, the band is on stage, and that's really all you get. Lame is, knock it off. I've said it a million times. It does not work as a film when you've got so many people singing on stage at the same time, you can't possibly get them all in the shot. I think that this falls victim to that same issue. I think that because, and you know, you can see it. It's obvious in that they stayed on so many wide shots. If you're so in love with the set, as is demonstrated by the fact that there are only three of them, then just let it be what it is and let it be on stage and let us enjoy this beautiful set that you've built from the audience. And when I say beautiful set, I mean that of a stage play not what they put here because you're right it should have been there there just should have been so much more to it it's as if they took th this feels like they just took cameras and put them in the theater and did a taping of the stage show and you know what had they done that i think that would have worked better let us know what you think have you seen the movie is this a holiday staple for you or are you a, uh, a March of the Wooden Soldiers person like we are? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio News this week. Frozen 2 opened up. You can see our review on our Instagram. Um, it's Frozen Fever. Yep. Monoreal, Monoreal in a minute. 350.2 million opening weekend shatters records for an animated film at the box office. Do you know how many movies would be happy with a total box office run of $350.2 million and they pulled it off in four days? Four days. This is going to be a billion-dollar animated movie. And I hope everybody keeps that in mind that rushed out to see it this weekend and is hating on it because you wanted a sequel, you got a sequel. Yeah. We that's all that's all I'm going to say because we're going to review it another time. But for all of the negative reviews that I've read, there's really not a lot of substance. It's hating on it for the sake of hating on it. Right. And go see it again and lot. give it more money. And you know what? Guess what? In a couple of weeks, they're going to do the same thing with The Rise of Skywalker. Right. Hate it because you're supposed to hate it. But you know what nobody hates? Walt Disney World. You know what nobody hates? Disneyland, Disney's California Adventure. You want to go? Jackie will get you there. Yes, you can reach out to me 
at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com, or you can hit us up on our social media at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I've got some good deals going for early 2020, so definitely jump on them. We've also got a contest going until this Sunday, December 1st at 11.59 p.m. You can enter to win by giving us a rating on either Facebook or... Your podcast uh, platform of choice, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, you know, Spotify, any of the platforms that we're on, of course. Sorry to jump in on you, but I could see you, you're fighting what I've been fighting, which is that dry throat. I'm still fighting it, yes. You also always do the contest plugs. Yes. I, I was running out of gas. But if you'd like to win that Disney Parks prize pass, uh, prize pack with the centerpiece being a limited run, limited edition pin from the Disney Parks Christmas Day Parade. Yes, just give us one of those reviews. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week and every week. If you like the show, give us that rating. Get an enter to win for that uh, that contest. Share the uh, episode. Put it on your Facebook, on your Twitter, on your whatever. Just send it to an email. Uh, send it to your friends in an email, your family, if you have people that love Disney. Maybe there are people that love Babes in Toyland. We want to hear from you. We want to hear why. Maybe you were raised with it. I don't know. But please, somebody tell me why this is classic, why this is timeless. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.